Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we're going to cover the recent local elections in England, where the Tories suffered a resounding defeat in the first electoral test for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Then we'll discuss newly proposed reforms to the European Union's Stability and Growth Pact. And while that sounds really boring, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant. Then we'll close out our discussion to go over the recent push from Internal Market Commissioner Terry Breton to ramp up Europe's ammunition production capacity to replenish stocks and continue supporting Ukraine. Then we'll turn to a conversation with Jude Blanchett, who holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. Jude joined us to discuss Sino-European relations after several European leaders visited Beijing throughout the month of April. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Don Etienne, let's let's kick it off with these big local elections that happened in England. Maybe you could give us an overview of, of what, what took place. So the local elections happened on May 4th, uh, Thursday, because the Brits vote on Thursdays for some reason. The main takeaway from this is it was not a good day for the Conservative Party and especially the Conservative government. The reason why this matters to in terms of election is those councils, which are very local, still take care of important things for people's everyday lives. Things like schools, social care, trash collection, etc. One thing to understand as well is councils can have no majority of a party. They can be hung, basically. So at that point, the different parties that form the council have to make decisions together. The big number here is out of about 8,000 council seats that were up for grabs during the election, the Conservatives lost over a thousand. That is a really big deal. We haven't seen a result like this and benefit to the Labour Party since 2002. This is a big message to the Conservative government of Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. I think we're starting to see the weight of, you know, being 13 years in power for the Tories and people starting to think, well, maybe it's time for someone else. Um, so where did those seats go? To three different parties primarily. One is Labour, because Labour gained about 536 councillors uh, seats and flipped 22 councils. So they gained majority in multiple places across the map, but most importantly, in some battleground places, including some that will be really important for the next general election, which is scheduled to happen sometime in 2024. Then the other two are the Liberal Democrats. Uh, They gained about 400 councillors and the Greens with about 250. That's, That's a really good result for the Green Party because in the UK they haven't had Uh, massive results over the years. They've done rather well in some specific local elections, but this is this is a really good result for them. Yeah, I think it is definitely a sign of of where the political uh, winds are are heading. And I think to give Rishi Sunak some credit, you know, there has been a return to a degree of pragmatism with his government. But in doing so and sort of being uh, someone that gives off sort of very elite vibes, so to speak, uh, having I think he's a Stanford alum and and very much uh, economic and business focused. The Conservative Party under Boris Johnson made this sort of pivot to try to take on Labour's working class vote in the North and, and succeeded. That with Rishi Sunak is sort of eroding and you ha- sort of see Conservatives now going back to kind of their traditional positions, but having lost a lot of credibility with a lot of voters and probably in the in the South of, of England. So this, I think, portends, you know, looks good for labor, but there's not going to be an election now for for a while. I think it's the end of 2024, uh, early 2025, which uh, will be the next election. So labor has to sort of continue this trajectory. I saw Keir Starmer did an interview with The Economist, sort of trying to put off a very problem-solving approach to to governance, very much a rejection of of the the Corbynite approach that had dominated labor uh, over the over the previous decade. Yes, I think that that's exactly right. The problem for the Conservative Party, I think, is twofold. Is One, they're losing support from the people who actually liked Boris Johnson's shift towards more populist policies and less small government than the Tories used to be. And they're facing at the same time, well, Sunak, I think, is just being hurt by the instability of the Tories for the last five, six years, even though his own government has seemed somewhat more stable on the policies. 
We've still seen scandals. I mean, Dominic Robb just resigned over allegations of bullying. So it just hasn't stopped long enough for him to be able to say, look, I'm the stable prime minister. And the elite vibes that he gives off is just it, it doesn't help him that much. Now, what's really important to differentiate, though, is obviously Sir Keir Starmer is going to say this was a pro-labor vote. We did amazing and they did amazing. I think from what we see of just even anecdotal interviews outside the polls is still, to me, seems overwhelmingly to be an anti-government vote. So as you were saying, it's unclear if labor can maintain that momentum until the end of 2024, depending on when those elections are going to happen. It also depends on tactical voting, which was a big component of this vote. So in constituencies where the non-Tory parties thought that they could gain, they align their strategies, not necessarily overtly, but they have a lot of, let's say, organizations around them that could work together behind the scenes to make sure that, let's say, there was a labor candidate that was poised to do a little bit better than a Lib Dem candidate. They tried to focus the attention on that on that candidate so that they really could run with it. So it's possible that when we get to the general election, labor can ride a similar strategy. But there's there's a lot to be seen still. I think the Lib Dems are really excited about the possibility that they're going to make a comeback on the national stage because it's been a while and their reputation was significantly hurt in the early 2010s when they aligned with the uh, Tory government. But lots to figure out still. The last thing I want to raise on the difference between Labour and Lib Dem is what's interesting to me is Labour has made a comeback in leave areas for the Brexit vote, whereas Lib Dem has made a comeback against the Tories in remain areas. So you can see where that vote, that Tory vote is being eaten up in very different ways, depending on where people used to stand on the Brexit vote, because there's so much disappointment on Brexit. Yeah, the the failure of, of Brexit, I think, is becoming really clear and it's becoming you know, this sort of political question that will, I think, permeate itself, probably not in the next election, but I think in UK politics over the next decade over what what is the UK's relationship with the EU. And it'll be interesting to see not so much where Labour is on this, because I think they are not necessarily going to come out and say, let's rejoin tomorrow, but they'll want to have a better relationship with, with Europe. Sunak has moved the Conservatives, the Tories in that direction as well. But we'll, it'll be interesting to see if that 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 remains. But maybe on the EU, we can pivot to another topic that seems on the face of it really boring. A bunch of economists and finance ministers sort of getting around the room to talk about the stability and growth pact. Yes, it sounds technical. But overall, what is this? It's a set of rules that is supposed to help maintain stability across uh, the European Union on the economic and monetary front to limit overspending and government debt across all of these EU members and coordinate fiscal policies across the bloc because there is no overarching fiscal power that the EU can really impose across all of its members. This is one of the ways. It does that through preventive systems and corrective systems, so fines if you're found in excessive deficit, etc. So this has... Uh, controlled the way the different EU member states coordinate their different fiscal policies over the years. The problem is, after the financial crisis of 2011, some of these stringent rules created very deep austerity and recessions across Europe. Although, to be clear, that's not the only reason why there are a lot of other problems. But a lot of observers have argued that it pushed some countries deeper in the hole than they would have been without some of these rules. So since about 2020, there have been consultations to change the framework, to loosen the rules a little bit, especially with COVID, with the war in Ukraine, with the green transition. There are needs for different kinds of spending and looser kinds of spending. So earlier this month or in April, the commission proposed some new rules uh, that mostly adapt the timeline to reduce a country's public debt, uh, make fines more predictable, and still maintain some safeguard on how long you have as a country to reduce your debt and keep spending below a certain uh, a certain number. It's still just a plan, but there is overwhelming agreement that something needs to give. Now, the shape that that takes is really up for discussion. Let me put it a little bit more bluntly. 
The Stability and Growth Pact is a sensible thing to do when you have a currency union. When you create a common currency, you don't want everyone just you know, going out and spending whatever. And that's what we have in the United States. We have the dollar. So states aren't allowed to have deficits. You're legally not allowed to have a deficit. So if you're, you know, during a recession, oh, my God, state governments have to cut money. And then what happens? Oh, the federal government, which can borrow, comes in and provides uh, a stimulus. And that's how our sort of fiscal policy is supposed to work. Sometimes it doesn't work. We had the Fed sort of step in and, and do quantitative easing to just sort of borrow money and sort of filter it into the economy. But the way it tends to work is that if you have your own currency and you're tying all your economies together, you have this body, the fiscal body, the executive, which in our case is the federal government, and the EU's case is no one because the commission doesn't really have this ability, then pumps money into the system. What the EU did uh, during COVID is it borrowed $800 billion because it had a potential economic uh, catastrophe, particularly in Southern Europe, that didn't have the ability to borrow and maintain its economies. So where we are now is that there's a lot of debt in the EU. There's a lot of debt everywhere. Everyone had to borrow after COVID. But you have all these major issues of defense spending, of climate change, of old people, because there's a lot of, you know, Europe is an aging continent. Well, aging continent with generous welfare states. Yes, with generous welfare states. And then you, you know, have a situation where Christian Lindner, who is the German finance minister from the FDP, uh, and this is this tripart coalition who's pushing a very hard line to return Europe back to a focus on debt and austerity, effectively, where wanting to push Europe to sort of go and say, OK, the priority for Italy needs to be reduced deficit spending. Now, whatever you think about that, and there's a good economic debate about that. The point I want to make is that if you think NATO countries are going to hit 2% and cut deficits, you are dreaming. Literally the most important conversation happening right now for the future of European security is not happening at NATO. It's not happening at Washington. It's happening between Brussels finance ministers that are not paying any attention to the impact that this will have on defense spending needs. And this is what drives me crazy about the Washington conversation about Europe and NATO. We disconnect the EU from NATO. We disconnect and say the EU doesn't do defense. Yes, it does. Know why? Defense is about your economy. It's about your spending. It is not just a bunch of generals in a room thinking about defense. No, no, no. It is about your budgets. It is about allocating money. And frankly, what's about to happen if, the, if you know, Christian Lindner even gets a little bit of his way, you're not going to see the increase in defense spending because Spain won't be able to do it. Because Spain has to cut, uh, will have to cut his budget and won't be able to increase defense spending. And that's true for, I think, it's roughly uh, eight to 10 Europe, EU members. So we're talking about a third of the European Union. I think most of those are in NATO, almost all of them. This is, I think, a real problem. When we look at what did we learn from this war, the European militaries were really crappy in worse shape than we thought, and there's a lot that has to be done to fix them. And this is an economic pact that then has no injection of money from the center. So it's just gonna be a, a, a cut fest that will then really kneecap uh, European defense and the transatlantic alliance. Does it drive you crazy? Because I really can't tell right now, which is understandable. I warned, at the, I warned at the top that this would be <laughs> a little bit of rant. You did a very, no, this is good. But yeah. this, I think it's really important to understand that really deep connection between the two because we can talk about 2% and discussions about moving it to three or whatever we're talking about at the moment. And not just 2%, but 20% in R&D investment. You were talking about the state of European militaries right now. There is no way you get to that if you can't invest that money. Not to mention the legitimacy that those governments need to have in front of their publics. Because one way, the only way, I think, to make sure that they have the political room to make those investments is to have their citizens be okay with it. If you're trying to say, okay, we're going to cut a lot, but we have those NATO commitments, so we're going to invest a lot in the military, but green transition, all of this, I'm not sure. Good luck with that. Not that some of these countries would do it because that's not where their incentives lie and that's not where their political platforms are. But you're just creating a situation where you can get you, you can foster a lot of resentment to at the citizen level. Yeah. Well, let's go through the three major things that Europeans are going to have to spend on climate, elderly 
and defense. You rank those three if you're a politician, it's probably elderly, climate, defense. So this is the this is the challenge that they're going to have in Europe. And this is where I think Washington should engage and recognize that actually the EU and encouraging the EU to develop a fiscal capacity, its fiscal union. No one asked the EU to borrow in the wake of this conflict to pay for its defense needs. That happened in the wake of COVID. But there was no U.S. pressure on the EU because we tend to think, oh, the EU doesn't do defense. And this is even from an administration, the Biden administration, that's been far more forward leaning on trying to engage, uh, engage the EU. The Stability and Growth Pact, it's really worth watching because this will tie the hands of European leaders going forward when we're asking 10 years from now, like, oh, I can't believe Europeans didn't spend more on defense. You know, this will be one of the reasons why. Well, and to be clear, just one thing on that. It's not just Germany, though. Germany is backed by several other member states that have very particular opinions about what should be allowed and what shouldn't. So it's going to be. No, that is true. That is true. It is not just Germany. And there's a lot of you know frugal countries, the Swedens, the Finlands, that the like Dutch, to hide behind that Germany. hide behind Germany. However, this is supposed to be a very pro-EU German coalition led by German Chancellor Schultz with the Greens and then the FDP, sort of the appendage on there. And what Schultz, who was the architect, actually not Merkel, of the 800 billion next gen EU, is letting the FDP kind of run with this. And it highlights the lack of German leadership, the lack of German vision for what is their approach toward Europe. And I was just in Berlin, and I don't really have a sense of what does Germany want the EU to become, and that's not very clear. And that's sort of coming through. And then so because Germany doesn't takes this stance, then all these other countries hide behind. It would be much, you know, we have a much better negotiation here if Germany, I think, had a, had a, had a different position. But maybe we'll close by switching gears to talk about Terry Breton's uh, ammunition push. And this is, I think, a really important initiative by the EU. What's important, it's not, uh, despite Terry Breton being French, it's actually an Estonian initiative for the EU to spend 2 billion euros, 1 billion to sort of give to countries that are giving ammunition away, but then also fundamentally to get its defense industries aligned so that they can produce uh, 155 millimeter mortar rounds, which are critical for this war, for, for Ukraine. And what Breton has done is done this kind of tour around Europe, visited all these different countries that can you know, potentially produce or, or help produce uh, this ammunition. And now he's submitted uh, to the European Parliament, the Commission has submitted legislation with finally a great acronym called ASAP, Act in Support of Ammunition Production. And what is so important about this is, one, it shows the EU can do things. It shows that you can do big things. This is, frankly, exactly the way that you will, you know, the EU should develop its defense industrial base, which is that you spread the money around to, to all different countries. You want to have support for defense spending, as we're talking about. Well, if it creates jobs, that's super helpful. And that's why we build aircraft in 48 different states in the U.S. and it creates strong con congressional support. The second thing is that this whole debate, there's been this constant like line from EU officials that the EU cannot buy arms. Now, what the commission is saying here is that this is the this is not actually the EU buying arms. It's just like it's defense industries working together. They didn't want to have the legal fight. However, if you look at the EU treaties, it basically says that the EU cannot spend money for defense operations. This is not a defense operation. To me, there's no reason why the EU couldn't buy arms. It does buy arms, actually, to support Frontex, its border service. And I think what we're seeing here is the classic thing that happens with European integration. There's a crisis that you needs to figure out how to respond. It then starts to take action. And then that small action then opens the door, creates new precedents. Because you know what? If you can do this and fund ammunition production, why couldn't the EU just go out, get $100 billion from capital markets, borrow another $100 billion, and get the tank factories going as well, get the tank production increased. This to me is a very important initiative, not so much just because the, the ammunition is critical for Ukraine. I mean, that's obviously the most important thing and why this is so important, but it lays the groundwork for the EU to start doing this on other areas where there's real shortfalls in European militaries. And I think that that's a area where we should be, be pushing as the United States for the EU to now do more. You can do this, you can do more. I thought in the treaties there's language about lethal equipment, but up for debate. Uh, how realistic 
is this plan? When I read this, that's my question is on the timeline that they would like to see it. And with the production capacity that we have, is this possible? Look, Germany got off Russian gas in the course of like 10 months and they built LNG receiving facilities that like the, the speed of lightning. Europe can do big things. And I think oftentimes we sort of, oh, this will take forever. And it might, but things can also move quickly. And my guess is that Europe is able to do this. You allocate the money, you set you know orders to a factory. And the one thing is that the commission has a lot of really effective bureaucrats that are good at pushing things through. We'll see. You know, there, I'm sure there's going to be headaches. I'm sure there's going to be hiccups. You know, EU officials may be trying to do some things that they haven't done before. Um, and there'll be some negative stories. But end of the day, I think this is going to work. And I think it will demonstrate that, you know, when the EU comes forward and starts activating, you know, creates a plan and, and pushes it, it can get big things done. We're seeing that on the energy and climate side. And I, I see no reason why that can't happen on the defense side as well. Yeah, I'll be really curious to see since... Breton has put this in front of the parliament to see what comes out of the parliament vote, because just the constellation of parties that we have right now have very different opinions on I, uh, defense and equipment. These I, did days, see, so. I did see that there's an effort to sort of fast track it through the parliament, which, you know, I think if anything, my guess is this, this is the sort of thing that will unite the parliament because both for those that are sort of pro EU, maybe skeptical on the defense side. Well, this is the EU expanding its role and, and will be in, in, in supportive of it. And those that are skeptical of the EU expanding its role, well, this is in support of Ukraine. So it, it works both ways. And I think also, also very important Estonian initiative and demonstrates that the EU can, you know, if it can do this, it can do other things. So we'll see. But maybe that's a good segue to our interview with Jude Blanchett. Yeah. So the extent of support to Ukraine, as we've just discussed and have been discussing for months, has been a big subject of discussion in Europe, in Washington as well. But increasingly, we've seen discussions of that support when it comes to China, which so far has remained neutral. There's been, you know, Seemingly a rapprochement between President Putin, President Xi, which has really worried transatlantic allies. So in the EU, there's also discussions on potentially sanctioning countries that are helping Russia circumvent some of the sanctions that have been placed on them, one of which would be China. So this, to me, makes our conversation with Jude particularly timely, and we'll turn to that now. We're really excited to welcome Jude Blanchett to the Europhile today. Jude holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS, where he leads the program's research on China's evolving political system and dynamics that impact its domestic policy agenda and external behavior. We also encourage you to check out their podcast, Pickingology, which analyzes the activities of the Chinese governing system and how these impact complex relationships relating to China. For example, they've recently discussed uh, the financial and economic dynamics of a possible Taiwan Strait crisis. That's really fun stuff. Jude, thanks for being here. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Jude, maybe I could start with the the big question that is roiling European politics. President Emmanuel Macron's visit to China, which got extremely negative reviews uh, in European capitals. We had uh, American senators, Marco Rubio, coming out and sort of blasting him as well. What was your kind of broader takeaway from that trip? And was it kind of as unhelpful as many folks have, have made it out to be? Yes. I should also uh, say at the, at the start, I, I, my comments would be more looking at this from the position of U.S. China policy more broadly. And of course, how I think Beijing has interpreted the visit rather than getting into sort of intra European foreign policy disputes. But I would say that the, the visit from Beijing's perspective could not have gone better. At a time where Beijing is trying to fight a narrative that it is being um, isolated from Europe or Europe is moving closer to a US conception of strategic competition, having the leader of France come to China and um, having not only the substance and style of that visit, but most importantly for Beijing was this, the series of interviews that Macron gave on the back of this. In many ways, so Macron was saying what many are thinking quietly about some of these issues, but the way in which he decided to bring this out, uh, make this open, just couldn't have been better for Beijing. And now you notice in a lot of Chinese discourse, Chinese experts and in Chinese propaganda, their view is essentially Europe's still very much in play. 
So let me let me just sort of probe on that. You know, from a European perspective or from Ukraine's perspective, I actually made the probably hot take that this was actually could be beneficial for Ukraine because for from a European security perspective, probably the most important thing is that China not arm Russia, that not come to Russia's aid by, you know, really solving their shell hunger by sending lots of ammo, uh, which they have the ability to do. And in part, the theory is that part of the reason why they're holding back is because there's a Europe there that is wedgeable between the U.S. Uh, and and Europe that China could could maybe build ties. Is that part of China's calculation? So are they thinking, okay, Europe is there to be had, and if we were to provide, you know, arms to Russia, that would that could that could really push the Europeans away from us? There's no doubt that of the many calculations Beijing is weighing when it thinks about the type extent of its support of Russia. It's thinking about the various diplomatic relationships that would be affected by that. So the the underlying mathematics of your analysis, I agree with, that if China became North Korea and was completely isolated from the global community, that would lower the cost of any given action because it wouldn't have as, as much to lose on that. I think that's slightly distinct from the very specific style of the Macron trip and more specifically the comments he made. That will not shape Beijing's decision on whether or not to provide ammunition, right? So if the theory was, well, by Macron basically saying, all of Europe is not united in, in this sort of tough on China approach. Therefore, you, you, Xi Jinping, have something to lose. First of all, I don't think that was Macron's calculation. But let's, let's assume it was. That, 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 I think, is a losing gambit. You can signal, and European capitals do every day, that they want to have meaningful relationships with China. They do so in ways that don't include giving interviews where you basically say the United States is, is bringing us into war over, over Taiwan. So if you want to compare the, the, the Scholz trip last year with the Macron trip, I think that was more of a model of how you would go to Beijing. And, you know, at the time, there was a little bit of concern over what the trip by the, the chancellor was going to look like. But I think it was really a model of you go, you're, you're on enough of the same page with other European capitals in the United States privately on delivering some messages that, that Xi Jinping doesn't want to hear. But frankly, it's only in those senior level meetings where he's going to be able to hear those. But you have the right optics around the trip. You're not doing the, the three-step dance with Xi Jinping. You know, you're not sipping tea with him publicly. So you go, you signal that we want to have a productive relationship. We have some concerns in the relationship. And you signal that uh, essentially try as you might Xi Jinping, you're not going to split Europe on these key core issues. And then you leave. So I don't think Beijing thinks its relationship with Berlin is dead, even though Scholl's visit compared to the Macron visit was, I think, um, far far chillier than than uh, than the recent visit by by the French. So you said some of the concerns that the model for Schultz's visit would bring to Xi Jinping cuz otherwise he wouldn't hear them. Is that because his apparatus does not bring those messages up to him? There's a concern on a number of policy areas where it's becoming clear that the information ecosystem around Xi Jinping, as it happens, by the way, in every dictatorship, this is not unique to the Chinese, you know, people don't knock on the door and tell the boss that, that your policy is failing. So one of the challenges in managing the relationship with China is their, their peripheral vision is getting bad, that their ability to understand action A will result in consequence, you know, B, C, D, E is degrading. And so the, the theory of the case is that this is one of the reasons it's going to be even more important that Xi Jinping have lots of face-to-face -face time with senior leaders, including the United States and President Biden, by the way. Whether you're a hawk or dove on, on U.S.-China policy, I think everyone agrees that Biden needs to be engaging face-to-face -face with Xi Jinping because the chances are that his underlings are not going to be communicating the full unverified truth. So it's not that European leaders go to Beijing. That's not the problem. The problem is messages sometimes that can be delivered. I think it's going to become even more important for European leaders to go. I think there's a few structural dynamics that need to be in place, right? Which is one, I don't think those meetings are certainly coming up back of those in public is the place that you air the dirty laundry of, of Europe. I don't think it's the place you air your, your concerns over U.S. policy. Macron, again, in articulating some concerns over U.S policy on Taiwan, I was in agreement with him, right? There's some concern about, and this, by the way, if you're out in Asia, you're going to hear much the same quiet concerns about the cadence approach and style of, of U.S. policy right now, you know, whether that's the Pelosi visit, um, whether that's concerns people had coming in of the transit by President Tsai, 
um, whether that's comments by Joe Biden, you know, multiple times now seeming to indicate that there's a shift of our, our of our policy on on Taiwan. So I, we have to totally separate those that there's you know very legitimate concerns to be had here. Um, but all that did was really um, give a propaganda coup to Xi Jinping. And if your model of deterrence on Taiwan is, which is mine, Xi Jinping needs to understand that if he takes any sort of aggressive action on on Taiwan, he will pay more than the military price over the immediate conflict. He's going to see a potential rupture in his financial and diplomatic relations with a large number of countries. You know, if Macron's theory was he wants to find ways to deter conflict, I actually think he marginally degraded that theory of deterrence by saying essentially, yeah, we see this as the Americans' fault, which if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm thinking, okay, that just lowered the cost just a little bit if I were to take any sort of action on Taiwan. Especially when you talk about France and the kind of member state and weight that it carries in the European Union. I think what you said about Xi Jinping's ecosystem is really interesting and really important for observers, especially transatlantic observers who might not really understand the dynamics around the regime at the moment. Um, but related to this, based on what you understand he hears from his establishment, what do you see as the foreign policy priorities for his regime when it comes to Europe and when it comes to Ukraine? Even though many folks in D.C. think Xi Jinping wakes up and sort of immediate thing is sort of great power competition is his number one, that, that's pretty far down the list. Goal number one, two, and three is about the economy right now. And so Europe was, is, and will remain a very, very critical economic partner for China. We, we tend to think about China being... Um, you know, 140, the largest trade partner of 140 countries, that's true. But China's biggest export markets are Europe, the United States, right? So stabilizing relations with Europe, ensuring that economic relations don't, de don't deteriorate. We'll get into the effects of the war in Ukraine later, but it has not been good for China economically to see to see all the sh supply chain shocks uh, throughout the region, to see the, the economic effects uh, through, throughout Europe. So part of this quote-unquote charm offensive after last fall's 20th Party Congress has been to some extent uh, about ensuring that relations with, with Europe on the economic front remain solid. Of course, China is always two steps forward, one step back. So you had the, the French ambassador, uh, the ambassador to France, Lu Chaillet, essentially throw a grenade into Xi Jinping's efforts to improve relations by saying that all the post-Soviet states lack, lack uh, legitimacy in international law. But that, that being said, I think the bulk of the strategy now is um, repairing relations. Second to that is um, getting into China's response to the war in Ukraine, or as the Chinese would call it, the special military operation. This is a, a, a large debate here in the United States. It feels like we're there are various polls of trying to define what China's strategy is is on this and what the nature of the, the China-Russia relationship is. But clearly, China understands it is paying a price for support of, of Russia. The reason it supports Russia, we can get into later. I mean, that, that's far more strategic, enduring. Beijing understands it's paying a, an economic price um, in a diplomatic price. And so it's trying to continue to find that balance of how can it um, continue with what it calls quote-unquote normal trade diplomatic relations with Russia, which normal trade relations with Russia during a very abnormal time is not normal to me, but how do essentially they can continue with that while I think limiting some of the cost that they're paying in terms of their relations with Russia. This has been an ever-shifting dynamic. This is why occasionally China will throw sort of glitter into everyone's eyes with with the with its position paper uh, on the war in Ukraine or the Ukraine crisis as it, as it called it this is why uh, after the visits of of Macron and van der Leyen they'll turn around we just saw that uh, uh, foreign minister Ching Gong just met with his counterpart on the margins of the SCO and said unequivocally comrade uh, this relationship will steam ahead at a strategic level so they're trying to do two things at once is maintain relations with with key European countries but also uh, support Russia and signal to Russia we're, we're here for you maybe just to, to follow up there is it strikes me from the Kremlin's perspective that I would be really annoyed with with Xi Jinping and, and the Chinese right now Vladimir Putin goes to the Olympics, one of the few leaders to go. You have a, a partnership with no limits that this you know really lengthy statement that comes out right before the war. Then Russia finds itself in a total mess. 
it is really struggling. We came out with a paper at CSIS looking at the impact of sanctions and export controls on the Russian defense industry, and it's having a real impact that Russia's ability to kind of maintain this fight is not infinite. They have lots of material, but uh, lots of you know tanks and storage that they're bringing out, but they could really use some assistance from the Chinese. And the way I sort of see it is China basically said no to Russia. They're giving them some. They're letting you know probably some machine tools and other things that can enable their defense industry. So they're giving Russia sort of 15% of what they want, but are leaving 85% off limits and largely adhering to many of the, the sanctions. Does that signal that China is sort of not a reliable partner? You know, you hear a country, you know, the chips are down and China's not there for them. That's sort of how I am kind of seeing this. And, you know, it's not in the Kremlin's interest to make this a big fight because they're so dependent. But I'm, I'm curious what you think about that and whether China is demonstrating to other countries around the world that, you know, being a, a, a partner with no limits with the Chinese doesn't actually mean very much. I find this such an interesting issue because we're all looking at the same set of facts. And I feel like a lot of us have come to really different conclusions about this. I don't know if it's where you sit, depends on where you stand or, or however the saying goes, because I've been surprised. So the February 4th statement, which you know I think took many by surprise, was the, the first in a long list of Chinese actions where I was thinking if an alien came down and was watching China rush over the last year, I think they would think that Putin is calling the shots. The amount of diplomatic reputational cost that China continues to be willing to pay to support Russia is very surprising to me. It starts with February 4th. So Putin has troops amassed on the border of Ukraine. And who did the February 4th statement, joint statement benefit? Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin? Vladimir Putin, right? You had essentially a superpower, the world's second largest economy, you know, mere what, two weeks before the invasion, come out and say full-throated, this is a massive strategic relationship, right? There's various debates about what Xi Jinping knew and when he knew it, but just symbolically, right? That's sort of withdrawal number one for the Chinese from the global reputation. Up till yesterday, the Chinese continue at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs podium to adopt the, the basically the Russian theory of the case, right? Which is, this is all NATO's fault. This is a U.S. plot, right? That this is, we pushed the Russians to this position where they had no, they had no other, they had no other choice. Wang Yi, uh, who is now the senior most foreign policy official in Beijing, and then Xi Jinping in rapid succession going to Moscow on basically the one year anniversary uh, of the war. Who does that, you know, symbolically support? The Chinese have been sanctioned over support. Chinese uh, drone manufacturers have been sanctioned. Brussels is now thinking about bringing sanctions against the Chinese. Chinese have done, have increased the tempo of their military exercises with the Russians. And if you talk to some, you know, folks at DOD, they may say that the substance of those military exercises are nothing burgers. But symbolically, Russia is, it, China is saying like, comrades, we're happy to increase our defense cooperation with you. So if you're in the Russian position, I wouldn't be crying about the fact that they're giving me 15% of the sort of hardware I want, I would be saying, I can't believe the Chinese are still showing up time and time again, even though we know they value all these relations with other countries. We know they have global ambitions, and yet they're still willing to sort of anchor themselves to our failing war, and there's no indication that they're going to walk away. And in fact, I think probably the Chinese view is the worse things get for, for Russia, the more they might start to think about how do they have to get them out. Because as the Chinese will say, clearly, Russian defeat is disaster for China, right? Because what comes after that, right? Uh, and the sad reality for China is there's no other major power in the world that shares as much of their worldview as do the Russians. A lot of people say, like, these countries have nothing in common. One's a revisionist. One, uh, you know... Xi Jinping has been pretty clear over and over and over and over and over again. It's a close personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. Their shared vision is total cynicism about the current international order and a view to change it substantially, which they said that again at the, uh, at the meeting in Moscow between Putin and Xi. That TV footage came out with the two of them leaving dinner. And Xi Jinping said to Vladimir Putin, there are changes going on, profound changes unseen in a century going on right now, which is Xi Jinping's slogan, which means the global order is changing. And he says to Putin, and we're going to drive these changes. No, that's a totally fascinating response because I, I buy everything you say. And then I'm also like, 
but they're not getting the shells. And then maybe it's sort of kind of the kind of UK-US relationship pre-December 7th, 1941, where you know, we're, we're giving some stuff, but we're definitely not the ally and partner that, that Churchill was sort of really hoping that he would, he would have, through, especially throughout 1940 and, and 1941. Maybe we could shift back to Europe for a second. We, I met with some folks who were coming through from a smaller European country and sort of quite confused about where kind of their country needed to be on China. And, and I think they sort of look at countries like France and Germany sort of opening the door to economic engagement with China, uh, particularly Germany and, and France as well. But I mean, both, both countries indicating you know, we're open to do some business, uh, but then also seeing the U.S. rhetoric on decoupling. And where do you see the kind of how should Europe economically think about its engagement with China from kind of a broader foreign policy position? It's a big question. But are we moving toward, you know, you should you European countries should be really wary and, and be getting out the kind of hardline rhetoric that you kind of see from from many in the U.S.? This is much a question about what the U.S. can do in terms of framing competition with China that would be helpful for expanding the coalition rather than shrinking it. You know, and this starts with the challenge of the word decoupling. You know, the United States just posted record bilateral trade with China last year. So, you know, in some sense, you could say decoupling is a myth. But on the other hand, we saw the October 7th export controls. So decoupling feels like the wrong word because we are both incredibly coupled with China and yet there are areas where we are disengaging. I think the, the speech by von der Leyen on de-risking might indicate that there is an understanding that if they're going to get a more unified position around Europe, they have to change the way they talk about this. No country is decoupling from China. And pushing the discussion as if that's a reality makes it politically very, very hard for especially less developed countries who are um, very dependent on this massive economy that is China's. And even China growing at, you know, growing much slower than it was five years ago, the economic base of China is so much bigger now that even lower growth at a bigger base means China is as, as important an economic actor. De-risking is a way to, I think, better calibrate the response and, and give a better idea of how you can weigh costs and benefits. We're not saying blow your foot off economically out of concerns for security that you may in your given country not share. Mm -hmm. But it is to say you need to be realistic about many of the challenges that over-reliance on China poses, whether that is thinking about supply chain vulnerabilities, whether that is the changing political and regulatory climate in China. It is not just U.S. companies that are being investigated, as we've seen uh, recently in the case of Bain and Minsk Group. You have detentions of foreign executives from other, other countries. I think finding a way to better calibrate how we talk about what worries us about China will actually open up space for more, not only European unity, but also unity with allies and partners in Asia who definitely talk to talk when we force them to, but quietly they blink SOS because their view is, look, we're here as elected governments because of economic prosperity and safety and security. And so we need to balance those, but we can't cut ourselves off from, you know, as, as many sort of officials around Asia will say, China's a geographic reality. It's also an economic reality. You know, we should also expect that there's not going to be a, quote, European position on China. Italy's position, although that, that may change with Belt and Road, but, you know, we're going to see Southern Europe is going to have different positions. And even, you know, even within Northern Europe, the debate is, uh, is still to some extent fractured. Although I would say, final thought is, there are always concerns here in Washington, D.C. about how, quote, slow the European conversation is moving. That only makes sense if you're in D.C. You know, um, this is if you were to get into a time machine and go back to 2016, it, it's, it's radically different. Right. Um, and so I think this is where thinking about strategy from the United States point of view as a coalition rather than us sprinkling some allies and partners is helpful, because if you're thinking about a coalition, sensitivities to the political realities in your coalition constituent countries means you might have to nuance your position, but that actually might make the coalition stronger in the end. Well, since you were talking about understanding that Europe has made huge strides and at the same time there are realistic things that worry us about China, I'd like to shift a little bit to the U.S. perspective. In, in your mind, what do you think the U.S. foreign policy establishment gets right about this competition with China versus certain things that might be a little bit overblown and tends to be the thing that is difficult in, for example, conversations with European allies? I think it's 
clearly true that the especially the Trump administration pushed conversations to a new level that they, they might not have happened organically. And some of those discussions are helpful for us to be having. The, the contradictions and tensions were building up. And I think it's only a Trump-like administration who could come through and say, you know, shatter the illusions. Whether or not you agree with all the policy prescriptions they took, that, that's a separate story. If a Hillary Clinton administration had come in, sure, China policy would have changed from what it was in 2001, but I think it would have been a much slower, slower evolution. So I think some of this is um, the United States as a driver for clarifying discussions on China has been helpful. I think the big, 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 big thing that I am frustrated with is we are thinking primarily as as if it is – this is the problem with the new Cold War analogy. For me, I, I, some of the, that analogy I, I agree with, but the biggest problem is the United States is not as singularly powerful – in all the ways it would need to be to run a unilateral strategy on China. This is why I think we need just have need to make a fundamental mind shift to thinking about coalition versus it's us and then we'll do a little allies and partners. I don't even like the framing great power competition because the Netherlands is critical, right? Because of the nature of global supply chains, technology supply chains, and, and the realities of, of 21st century competition, you have one company in one very small country, which is critical for us, right? So that's just an, an illustrative example of why calling it great power competition, and I'm using scare quotes, is, is overly narcissistic and does not diagnose the reality of this. And this is why when you look at successes that the United States in documents and when we brag about what we do, what are we doing well on China, it's always talking about things we're doing with other countries because we partly understand that that's where you really get traction and bite if you're thinking about shaping China's choices, right? So whether that's Quad, whether that's AUKUS, whether that's bringing the Japanese and the Netherlands or maybe or not uh, on board with the October 7th. And so where we should nuance our China policy is not kowtowing to Xi Jinping. It's basically opening up space for uh, constituents of our coalition to have the political discussions they need to have to strengthen the coalition. So how we talk about the competition matters. Calling it an existential crisis makes it harder for governments, even our closest defense you know, partners like Singapore and, 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 and Japan, that makes them nervous because they're elected governments and they need to be able to manage the risks, right? Saying decoupling isn't the right way to say it because we're the largest economy in the world. We can withstand these shocks. Not every country who's a part of the coalition can. And so again, just shifting it to de-risking rather than decoupling is better. So I think we just need to have a much more lateral view of strategy um, that understands that our greatest advantage in shaping China's choices is the coalition. And the coalition requires deference, nuance, sophistication. This is not a new Cold War in the sense that it's not a unipolar moment where we can just sort of dictate choices that everyone else has to, has to follow by. Well, final question to, to talk about kind of the elephant in the room that is sort of dominating a lot of transatlantic conversations, uh, U.S. conversations about China, and that's Taiwan. It seems to me that the U.S. conversation in Taiwan has has really kind of taken a very kind of Washington acceleration, where it went from, I think, a really smart and strategic insight that we have to take what, uh, what Beijing is saying about Taiwan seriously and their potential intentions on Taiwan seriously, that this is actually a war that could happen, to they're going to invade, China's going to invade Taiwan in five years to two years to, oh my God, it's going to happen right now and we're not ready and we can't be supporting Ukraine because there's a war to fight in Asia. What's your view on the U.S.-Taiwan conversation and how that should sort of impact kind of U.S. military thinking, when, especially when it comes to having to balance the European theater and, and the Indo-Pacific? First, I would say that the voices saying we need to cut and run on Ukraine over Taiwan are relatively few. And certainly the administration is not anywhere, anywhere near that. Uh, you know, and I think they've done a very good job, as, as much as you realistically could, of assuaging concerns of allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific that, that we're not focused on you anymore because there's a, a war in Europe. I don't think anyone in the region thinks the United States is sort of out of out of the Indo-Pacific at all. Yet they've still been able to sort of support European allies. And it's an incredibly hard balancing act. The other challenge I think we face is many of us who are critical of the sort of China actually might be invading right now, you never know, 
sort of uh, pronouncements that are coming out or guessing which years Xi Jinping, you know, it's easy to be critical of those, which many of us are. The challenge is those comments are designed to focus attention, mobilize resources today to get things done five, six, seven, eight years from now. And so the, the, some of the critique is these are massive bureaucracies and, and you don't move them to make big painful changes by saying, oh, it's complicated. You know, Xi Jinping, you, you, you have to essentially draw a, a, a stark picture of what, what's gonna happen. And I think folks who, um, you know, folks who are pushing that line are pretty clear that this is, you know, there's a little bit of truth in this, but this is really about sort of moving bureaucratic uh, entities here. And I think it's incumbent on those of us who don't like that approach to recognize that that's the problem they're trying to solve and think of the way that we can help help with that. I don't think Xi Jinping is itching to launch a war with the United States 90 miles off his shore. It would be devastating for him. Um, but it's also the case after watching Putin invade Ukraine that um, authoritarian leaders miscalculate. We don't know for sure what Xi Jinping's timeline is when he's going to act. You know, he's not yet doing the Saddam Hussein, sort of walking around the compound muttering to himself. Um, but again, I think anyone who tells you one way or the other they know she's calculus is trying to sell you a bridge. Going back to the sort of coalition comment, though, my view is if we are going to deter Xi Jinping, part of this is going to be about him getting a, a visceral sense that there's a lot of countries who, in their own way, would take a withdrawal from the China bank account if there was an aggressive action, right? And so every country is going to do that in their own way. Not every country is going to have the military presence that Japan, the United States, Australia are. So that's where uh, getting folks to credibly commit or at least signal to Beijing that there might be some economic or sanctions cost. But that in turn, and this is the sort of final point here, depends on those conversations will move forward in tandem with countries feeling like the United States is successfully managing these tensions. And that's to go for it full circle back to Macron's statement, completely disagree with the way he said it, but he was saying the quiet part out loud for, for many who publicly are with the United States, but under the conditions that we are not recklessly pushing towards, towards a conflict. And I was just out in Southeast Asia and that was very much the view, even from very staunch pro-U.S. Um, government officials was, we get really nervous when we hear the very loose talk about existential crisis, plus a trip by Speaker Pelosi, plus a U.S. policy on Taiwan, which isn't always clear. You know, Biden saying we're giving, essentially, you know, comments interpreted as we're giving a unilateral security guarantee, and then the White House saying, no, 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 just kidding, everything's, everything's normal. That makes people very anxious, and in direct proportion to how close you are to the blast radius. It's far away for us, but if you're Japan, if you're the Philippines, uh, if you're Vietnam, if you're Singapore, if you're Malaysia, Indonesia, this is, you know, this is utmost concern. So I think that's, again, where we got to say the right things and understand how words matter. And final, final point, the U.S. has done a lot better on this recently. You've noticed that all of the senior U.S. military officials offering their own pet theory for when Xi Jinping will invade, that essentially stopped. Um, Admiral Aquilino, the head of Indopaycom, was just out in Southeast Asia recently and was saying the right things, which is, we don't know what, what Xi Jinping's timelines are. All we know is we're ready. You know, we're in lockstep with our allies and partners. China shouldn't think about doing it. But other than that, we're just going to, you know, keep doing our thing. And I think that's the sort of message that actually increases the amount of support we get. But we do have to find a way to both signal urgency without provoking anxiety. Well, Jude, thank you for that uh, tour de force. We'll try to have you back on the Eurofile because Europe-China relations is something that is really animating discussion uh, in Europe, and, and you're one of the, the most astute analysts when it comes to all things China. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sissy Martinez and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.